I've lived in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. Now, I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Sapio, talking arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Not so famous in New Jersey. My guest today is someone from the comedy genre, but instead of telling you about who Vinnie Brand is, I'm gonna let him tell you himself. So I'm sitting here today with Vinnie Brand, and Vinny, why don't you describe to me and to our listeners exactly what you are? All right. So, you know, people tend to define themselves. I'm a comic. I'm a plumber. I'm a astrophysicist. Whatever you are. And that tends to be your definition. So Barry J., who we have a mutual connection to Barry and Lynn, who are you know, two of the greatest humans that ever lived. Now, I can't recall sitting here whether Barry said it to me or I said it to Barry. There's a movie at Taylor Tinker Sailor Spy. Mm-hmm. I described him that way because Barry was a guy that did everything. And so right. you couldn't define Barry yet. You couldn't say he's this thing. Right, right. And that's the thing in, in my line of work. You know, comics say, oh, I'm a comedian. And, you know, a lot of comedians will say, well, you're a club owner. And I go, hey, listen, don't put me in a box because I'm a father. I'm a soccer coach. I'm a husband. Mm-hmm. I'm a friend. I'm a sometimes reluctant always enemy i am you know a a comedian a writer i'm i'm a a reader so what am i how do you describe me i like to say i'm fully engaged even when i sleep i'm sleeping better than other people i try try to just be an effective person so i have a lot of hats i was a board of ed member i'm i'm all these Things and right, so professionally, I'm a comedian, club owner, writer, talk show host, partner, and you know, as a person, I just like, well, you know, why define me? Because yeah, I can succeed or fail in any one of them. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be the only part of me. Well, now you're you're best known as the owner of the Stress Factory Comedy Club in New Brunswick, and of course, you're a comedian yourself, as you already mentioned. But your background is pretty diverse. You owned a flower shop and a construction company. Your dad was a union steam fitter, although you've sided with the anti-union side of politics, but we'll talk about that later. Did I miss anything? You missed a lot. I, um, <laughs> okay, so I own the club, and it's important. I always point it out. My wife and I are partners, 100% 50-50 partners. She's actually the brains of it. I am more the onstage personality, so people tend to think of me and only me. You're the eye candy. I'm the eye candy, as, as awful as that may be, <laughs> as disappointing as that may be. Uh, yeah, I'm the eye candy. But in my professional life, as a professional individual, I sold swimming pools and jacuzzis and small construction, trying to just make a living. I, I had some kids that I had to pay for. And then I owned the flower shop, which you mentioned. And I owned a construction company after selling them. And then iteration-wise, I delivered pizza for a while. And it was part of my profession (laughs) because I was doing anything I could to put money on the table. So my primary business has been for uh, 30 years just comedy. Yeah. I guess that overtakes everything, right? Yeah. We always hear about comedians working on their set, you know, hitting clubs to try out new material. But you tend to ad-lib, and you describe yourself as performing off the cuff and, quote, in the moment. 
Is this because it's pretty hard to bomb in your own club? No, it's easier to bomb in your own club because there's an expectation. And I think what happened is maybe it's harder for me to bomb because I lost the concern about bombing. Because I think as a comic, you have to have a certain disconnection to the fear of bombing. Because if you're afraid of bombing, you're going to bomb. But in my club, for the longest time, I felt a lot of pressure to not just repeat. Because I've worked with comics that do the same thing year over year. And it doesn't matter because they're bouncing to 50 different venues. And so if they repeat it a year later, and 2% or 10% or 20% of the audience has already heard it, it's been a long time. But in the club... I have a lot of regulars. We have a lot of regulars. Yeah. So I became comfortable at a different level. Like a gymnast. Yeah, I mean... You can't be afraid of falling or not going to try it. Yeah. On stage in general now, I also... I don't think what we're doing is important. So I don't take it too serious. You know, we're relieving tension. And you'll hear people say, well, laughter is important. Yeah, it's important. But if you're hungry... No one goes, look, I'm starving. I haven't eaten in a month. If I could just get a couple chuckles, I wouldn't care. So it's important in a sense, but I don't think it's important in any grand scheme. Yeah. I think if no one laughed again tomorrow, it'd be tragic, but I don't think life would end. Yeah, it's not like brain cancer. Yeah. Air is more important. I understand from reading some earlier interviews that you had that the first night you got on stage, you absolutely killed. And then the second night, you absolutely bombed. So let's talk about failure. Every time you get on stage, you have a really huge chance of failing. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld uses that whole comparison to baseball. In baseball, if you fail 70% of the time, you're still considered a really good player. Right. You get a 300 average. When you find yourself bombing, and like again, you probably don't do it that much anymore, how do you get out of a situation like that? Well, yeah, I can tell you one thing about not having a good set. I can remember the last set I had that I didn't love. It was a very unique environment. It wasn't at the club. But when you're bombing, there's a couple ways to get out of it, and they're all almost, in my opinion, technical solutions, mm-hmm. right? So if you're bombing and you know that the piece you're working on is going to bomb, but you know you have another piece that is a high probability of getting a laugh, you can switch to that. Maybe eight or nine years ago, I was on stage, I did a joke, and I wasn't bombing, but that one joke bombed. That was the first moment that I can cognitively recall being so comfortable that I didn't care about the one joke. Mm -hmm. And so there was no rush to a backup plan. And what I said to the audience is, man, I I could have swore that joke was funny. And in my head, it still is. <laughs> yeah. But clearly, it isn't. Well, you know, Johnny Carson was like the best bomber in the business. Every it, time Johnny Carson bombed, he made it funnier. Yes. Well, I said, it's so interesting how wrong you can be. And that got a laugh. And that ended the moment. I, I may have said at that time, mind you, I'm going to try it again. And that joke, eventually, I dropped from the set. And then a couple <laughs> times, when I'd be killing... I would say, hey, I want to try this joke. It's never worked once. And I would tell the joke, and it would bomb. And I'd go, man, it's, it's never going to work. And that's funny. Yeah. So you ask how you get out of that, that moment. The more seasoned you are, I think the more solutions occur to you. But if you acknowledge it to the audience, you're allowing them to know that you know. And then they're not sitting there going, does he know? Like, you know, yeah. if you don't acknowledge <laughs> that a joke bombed and you just keep going... Part of the audience is going, doesn't he know how bad he's stinking it up right now? <laughs> Whereas if you just say, listen, that joke was terrible, 
then the audience can get back on the page mm-hmm. with you. They go, yeah, at because, least you know it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your family background, your family that you grew up in. We grew up, uh, my, my mom and dad were blue collar, uh, not college educated, hardworking, red blooded, flag waving, Reagan Democrat. You voted Democrat their whole life until Reagan and understood the value of family. And my father and mother both understood the value of laughter. And there was a lot of laughter and particularly laughter <laughs> in moments that by definition aren't funny. So, you know, that, that ability to laugh through your hardships, that was pretty ever present. Poverty teaches you that. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, I, I was with my father in the garage one time and I'll never forget it. He swung a big mallet at a spike he was holding. He missed the spike and tore a big gash in his hand. Ooh. And I said, oh man, are you okay? And he goes, ah, it's only a flesh wound, which was a Monty Python callback. And we had just watched the movie. You know, that's just a small example of him finding humor and everything. I grew up with two older sisters, one younger brother. We all developed my father and mother's sense of humor. When I was a kid, I absolutely loved the Beatles. Let me rephrase that. I was obsessed with the Beatles. Finally, one night, my mother, who was very calm, never lost her temper, absolutely placid, flipped out on me. Why can't you talk about something else? (laughs) She couldn't take it anymore. So what did you do as a kid that absolutely made your mother crazy? I was pretty close to perfect. (laughs) Pretty close. (laughs) I mean... So close. Uh, So I don't know what I did that drove her crazy. What drove my father crazy? My father used to tell me, I'm going to use salty language in this. Oh, that's that's fucking K. And (laughs) he said to me, I hope you become a goddamn lawyer. Because that goddamn mouth of yours... Because when we argued, I would litigate the argument Mm -hmm. and win and box them in and win. My mouth, my ability to argue would would drive my father nuts. (laughs) But he would laugh, but say, you better become a goddamn lawyer. And then the thing that made my mother crazy, but she loved it, was that I would constantly crack on her or if there's a family get together and you left me room, Mm -hmm. I would pick on you. And in a fun way. So maybe I remember one Thanksgiving where my brother and her, and this is probably our last family Thanksgiving or maybe our second to last family Thanksgiving before they divorced. We were on her about the meal. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's, it's one of those moments where, you know, you were getting big laughs and you saw that you went one step too far. We were on her, and um, uh, it was one of those... And after she spent hours and hours making the meal. She was still in preparation mode, <laughs> and we were really giving her the business. And it's one of those moments where you you knew you overstepped, but after it was too late. Yeah, and you and, couldn't stop. Yeah, to her, good, to her credit, she recovered, but it took time. In comedy, one of the things that always I never want to do is I don't want to hurt anybody. And that day, we probably hurt her, and she recovered. But I think about it a lot, and we laugh about it. But if my mother were here today, it'd be the first apology. I've done a lot of stage acting, and I have often imitated a relative of mine. One show, I was absolutely imitating my Aunt Lena. (laughs) And the greatest thing was when another relative recognized her immediately. What relatives have you ever incorporated into your act? I will use stories from my mother's funeral, my father's funeral, my sister, uh, friends. Those are all story-based pieces. When I imitate them in the story, I give them not their voice, 
but I give them some exaggerated, ridiculously disconnected mm-hmm. voice. But I will tell a lot of stories from family trips we took and, you know, my father, industrial plumber, you know, well-educated in his field, but not educated in that classic Harvard sense. And um, probably one of the smartest guys I knew with regard to how to live life. And so I would do stories from him, you know, stories from just things we lived through with him. So that's how I utilize my family. Yeah. And it's almost always positive, the word I love to use, whether I invented it or not or bastardized it. I hyperbolize mm. points of the story. Like a caricature. That draw out the comedy, yeah. yeah. What do you think is the internal logic of comedy? Comedians nowadays don't tell jokes anymore. It's all about observational comedy. And it seems that comedy now is more about anger. As I watch, like, Sebastian Maniscalco, He's really incredibly funny, but everything he's talking about is something that he's angry about. And it seems to be a common thread now in a, with a lot of comedians. So is comedy about anger? It's not only about anger, I, in my opinion. I think that it's about the personalized experience, right? So Sebastian's telling you what bothers him. Bill Burr is about what bothers him. Mm-hmm. Burt Kreischer is a comic that tells stories that are not angry. They're goofy stories. Mm-hmm. Tom Segura tells stories that are goofy stories. And there, there's, so I think there's a lot of guys. Brian Regan, Bob Marley, Brewer, me. I don't use anger, but I have used anger. It depends on what anyone's talking about. So when I'm talking about what we did during the pandemic, it's frustration and anger-based, but I'm not mad about it. I think it's comical. Yeah. But, but I can see that anger was a jumping-off point for me, right? Now, when I say angry, what angered me? Okay, stupidity or brutal upfront hypocrisy is anger-inducing. Mm-hmm. So if my nine-year-old plays a soccer game and there are 12 kids literally laying on each other for an hour and then immediately after the game, they're not allowed to shake hands because they might get COVID. And I'm going, uh. okay, well, how does someone not see how dumb that is? So it's frustration that I see that and it's comical that I see it. There are guys that use anger as a sole source. Tim Dillon, Burr, Lewis Black, Sebastian. I don't think he's angry. He's astonished. I love his company routine. I mean, I yeah. could watch that 15 times and still laugh at he's it. He's great. Sebastian's a great comic. All those guys we just talked about are great comics. Dylan's angry. Burr is angry. Lewis Black is angry. angry. Now, you haven't mentioned any female comedians. Well, you know, aside from the fact that women just aren't funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah, and there are fantastic. Jessica Kirsten is a great. Um, I don't. This is always a conundrum for me mm-hmm. because I am inclined to say a great female comic, but I don't need to, to say female. Yeah. She's just a great comic, and there's a ton of great uh, comics that happen to be women. You know, there's there's uh, Jessica Kirsten, and there's Whitney Cummins, and Chelsea Handler, and Nikki Glaser, oh. and uh, Eliza Schlesinger. I'm missing a bunch. Yeah. Tons and tons. Now, when I saw Amy Schumer at your club a couple of years ago, she did a great job of ignoring people who were yelling at her from the crowd. They weren't heckling her. They were just being annoying people. Yeah. What's the best technique that you've seen to handle hecklers? Be very funny. <laughs> no, so not like Michael Richards. Don't do not do the Michael Richards no. route. No. Listen, <laughs> I think in many instances, the comic invites a heckler because... There's something amiss. And then there are instances where someone's drunk or they want to yell out. And again, gratefully, I don't get that, but I have gotten it. Several years ago at the club in New Brunswick, I was really having a great set. 
And there's a guy dead center. I can still see where he was sitting. And I'm just killing. And he all of a sudden heckles me with a really bad heckle. And nobody laughs at him. And they start booing him. And I go, no, 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 don't boo him. Don't boo him. I go, please, don't boo him. And the audience gets quiet there a little bit. Like, well, what is Vinny going to do? Like, why isn't he upset? And I said, I feel sorry for him. I said, because he's been sitting there with the intention of heckling me. For 38 minutes, I've been on stage. And for 38 minutes, he's been saying to himself, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. He had 38 minutes to plan. And that's the line he came up with. I feel bad. (laughs) You would think that you could. Now you just like made him feel like a worm. Yeah. (laughs) And I I belittled him while defending him. Yeah. yeah. So I defended him in a way that made him feel like an idiot. And he never said another word. See, my, my comeback would have been men with small penises always like to heckle me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's one other heckle story. I was doing a joke. It's going back four years. And I said, well, finally, we have a hot first lady. I'm talking about Melania Trump. The rest of the joke, I forget. But it wasn't meant, nor could anyone get to it being a slam on anybody else. And there was a guy in the audience, and he yells out, fuck you. And I go what and it was a big black guy and he yelled again well basically it was a slam on michelle obama he was mad that i didn't call michelle obama hot i hammered him from stage him i handled very aggressively put him in his place finished the joke after the show i thought he might be a problem he comes up and he apologized immediately and he goes i'm sorry i'm sorry because i should have let you finish the joke i saw where you were going with it i said listen i don't think michelle obama is hot michelle obama is a beautiful woman Melania Trump is a formal model. And when guys think of a formal model, the word hot is used differently. But he apologized. But it was really funny because in that instance, I'm like, wow, here's a guy that really wanted to get stretched out there. So no matter what generation you look at, everybody loves comedians. So what is it about comedians that we love? I mean, I would like to think that, you know, laughing feels good. And I would also like to think that, you know, you think about the history of mankind. This is the softest period of survival we've ever had in our country, with the exception of people who are struggling. We have everything we need. And yet we're not patently happy. We find things to be upset about. So what do you love about comedy? You love someone giving you a moment of just laughing. You know, really honestly, when you think about it, if you wake up and you have 5G coverage, your day should start and end with laughter. It should never end. You should just, every day just well, Louis C.K. has that whole thing about being in an airplane and somebody's complaining because he didn't have Wi-Fi for the, when they were landing. And he's like, yeah. you're a thousand feet in the air in a, in a metal tube and you're complaining. But comedy done right gets you out of your complaining self. Now, I'm going to start this question, but there's more to it, so bear with me. My question is, is rape ever funny? So I've just asked a really good question, and we've run out of time. Well, there's so much more we talked about. So for the first time, I'm going to post a two-part interview. So you'll be able to hear what Vinny says about humor and rape, how insecure comedians are, and who is the one comedian... He will never book at the Stress Factory again. Come back in three weeks and hear the rest. I love the arts and I love to talk. And that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucille Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk.
not so famous in New Jersey.